This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Please pray with me. Almighty God, thank you for your word and for these stories. Please speak through them to us today. Give us what we need to hear from you. In Christ's name, amen. Be seated. Have you ever sat, maybe at a holiday or a family reunion, and listened as someone tells you the same story you've heard a thousand times before? If not, it's possible that maybe you're the one telling the stories a thousand times over. But families tend to do this, the stories that get repeated exhaustively, even though everyone knows how it ends, everyone knows it by heart. We do this as communities, too. I've been at Ascension only three years, but I've lost track of how many times I've heard the story about the faithful group of intercessors years ago who prayed for children when we had none here, and about how the floods of children that fill this space now are a testament of God's answer to those prayers. Is there a reason why we rehearse stories over and over? Why do some stories among our families and among our communities get so much mileage? This question has been in my mind because in our scripture readings today, specifically the Old Testament reading from Nehemiah and Psalm 78, we heard a retelling of the same story twice. And those are far from the only places in the Bible where we hear those stories. All throughout the pages of scripture, we hear a specific story, the story of the Exodus, told again and again. Why is that? The Scottish-American philosopher Alistair MacIntyre famously said that I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question, of what story or stories do I find myself a part? I don't know if this is anywhere more true than in the case of ancient Israel. The story of their deliverance from Egypt was paradigmatic in their understanding of themselves as a people. Who are we? We are a people that have been delivered from oppressors by the hand of our God. Who is God? He is the one true God who has delivered us. This is who Israel was. It didn't matter how many generations had passed. Their identity was drawn from this central story of the Exodus. When we spend time in the scriptures, we start to see remnants and echoes of this story everywhere. We heard it twice laid out in full in our readings. God heard Israel's cry when they were oppressed as slaves in Egypt. He delivered them miraculously through the Red Sea, away from Pharaoh's army. He led them by a cloud and by fire. He gave them the law through Moses. He miraculously provided water and bread in the desert. He was faithful to his promise, even in the face of Israel's rebellions and disobedience. This is the story that the people of God turn to to remember who they are. Whatever their current circumstances were, this was their true north. They are a people redeemed. Their God is merciful and gracious and will not forsake them. This is the story that the Israelite families would tell at the supper table. The words we read together in Psalm 78 beautifully depict this story as a heritage to be passed down the generations. 
reading that I will, I will utter these things from old that our ancestors have told, them, have told us. We will not hide them from our descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord so that our children would know them and they would in turn tell their children and they would put their trust in the Lord. For Israel, this is how they know what to do because they know of what story they are a part. And just as it was deeply significant for the Jewish people to understand themselves as the people of God through this story, it is significant for us as well. But where do we fit into this? Are we supposed to fit into this? As the church, under the new covenant as we know it, how do we understand our relationship to Israel, to their history? In other words, what is our entry point into this story? And this is, truthfully, a bigger question than we have time this morning to fully undertake. But it matters what we say here, because poor theological reflection on this relationship between the church and Israel has led to disastrous consequences over the course of human history. To many people, the the Jewish people have been cast either as irrelevant to our current faith or worse, enemies of it no longer the inheritors of God's promise, cut off and replaced by us, the church. This line of thinking brought even our beloved reformer, Martin Luther, to the appalling conclusion that the Jewish people had been fully rejected and condemned by God and ought to be treated as such. And erroneous theological trails like this were soon joined with other racist motivations and we as the world have witnessed some of the ugliest devastation that humanity is capable of as a result. And this reality has maybe felt particularly sharp here this week for many of us as the trial for the shooting at Tree of Life Synagogue, our neighbors here in Pittsburgh, came to a somber end this week on Wednesday. We have seen the grievous effects when Jewish people have been tragically cast as the villains either in racist conspiracy theories like those which motivated the events at Tree of Life, or theologically by those who, like Martin Luther, believed the Jewish people were renounced by the very God who once committed himself to them. So what are we to think? What ought we to say when we come to these stories? When and how do we enter the narrative? In what sense do these stories belong to us? Well, the Apostle Paul, himself a Jew, addresses this question multiple times throughout his letters to the churches, which were filled with both Jewish and Gentile believers. And whether in Ephesians, in Galatians, or in Romans, Paul's answer is the same. It is in Jesus Christ, who in his incarnation, life, sacrificial death, and resurrection, fulfills the Old Testament covenant and promise. Born into a Jewish family, the fulfillment of all that the Old Covenant looked forward to, the ultimate deliverer who would lead us out of bondage and into freedom. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul lays this out, saying that all are invited to participate in this new covenant. Paul describes it as a new humanity being established. Everyone who believes is brought into union with Jesus, who has gathered this new humanity in himself because he is a descendant of Abraham, because he is utterly beloved by God, so are we. In other words, the gate has swung wide open to us, to all. We constitute a diverse new humanity in Christ, made up of Jews and Greeks, male and female, slave and free, every tribe and tongue. By grace, we have been brought to share in the heritage of Abraham's family, 
this blessing and promise and identity as God's chosen beloved people has not been replaced by us, but extended to us. An important image that Paul uses for this relationship is in Romans 11. He says that just like a gardener might graft a wild branch into an existing tree, the church is grafted into the original tree of Israel, where we receive life and nourishment from the root, just like the original branches do. It's like adoption, but with plants. <laughs> Paul writes elsewhere that all who belong to Christ are Abraham's offspring, inheritors of the promise that was originally given to Abraham so long ago. This is different from, from some who would claim that we as the church fully replace Israel, as if they are no longer inheritors of the promise. Rather, in Jesus, we are grafted into a tree, brought to share in the heritage of something we otherwise would have no claim on. But why does any of this matter? Well, if our friend Alistair McIntyre is right, we only know who we are and what we are to do by knowing of what story we are a part. It matters tremendously. We now know of what story we are a part. We are the beloved people of the one true God who has revealed himself in the story of Israel, in their promise of blessing and formation as a people and deliverance from Egypt and so on. Learning these stories, rehearsing these stories shapes our understanding of who we are. Apart from this story, we can easily imagine ourselves to be in a privatized, isolated journey with God. And who knows how he might act toward us or who knows what we are supposed to do. But instead, we can respond to the invitation of the writer of Psalm 78 to receive these stories as they have been taught to us, the praiseworthy deeds and wonders of God, to allow them to shape us and pass them on to our children so that they might know him and likewise trust and follow him. The writer of this psalm would have been generations removed from the actual Exodus deliverance, but in Nehemiah's day as well, hundreds of years had passed. But it may as well have happened yesterday. The story of God's rescue and faithfulness was so ingrained in the mind and heart of Israel that because of it, in it, they knew who they were, who God is, what they were made for, and what they were to do. What if we also learned to understand ourselves through this grand story? The Old Testament, especially the Exodus narrative, is paradigmatic for the story of our salvation. Have we not also been brought from slavery into freedom? Have we not been protected and declared innocent by the blood of an innocent one in our place? Have we not been brought through water into a new life, leaving behind our old land and walking into something new? Do we not also struggle to learn how to live as free people, wondering where God is or why he's brought us where he's brought us? Aren't we also sustained by daily bread, given generously by the God who provides for us? Haven't we experienced his faithfulness in the face of our own forgetfulness, our own obstinance and entitlement? Don't we also look ahead and journey toward a promised future where all will be well? And aren't we, as Israel was, chosen by God to be a light to the world so that his blessing runs through us to the nations. The truth is that I find myself all throughout this story. In fact, the story helps me to make sense of who I am and how I am called to live. 
not prescriptively or in the sense of copying and pasting their stories directly to us as if the same actions would guarantee the same results. Instead, we rehearse these stories similarly to how we at Ascension rehearse the story of God's answer of prayer for children. Because these stories form us, they shape and focus our understanding of our identity and of who we know God to be. So we are invited to consider our lives in this paradigm of Israel's journey out of Egypt toward the promised land, reflecting on the story in all of its messiness as people who are ourselves rebellious and obstinate, doubting, oppressed and crying out to God, delivered, eating and drinking, trusting, demanding, remembering and forgetting. It's worthwhile to take the time to consider our locations in this story. Where am I? Where have I been? How is God showing himself to be faithful? And it's intriguing to think about these questions, both individually and as a community. Maybe you find yourself on the cusp of a new season, stepping forward into an unknown land, and you don't know what will be on the other side. Maybe you feel as though you're backed against a wall, like the Israelites trapped between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea. How might God provide an impossible way through? Perhaps you are struggling to know how to live as one who is truly free. Is there something in Egypt that is calling you back? Maybe you've been tempted to forge idols to turn to because you haven't heard from a God lately and you don't know if or when you will again. What are you journeying toward? What are you leaving behind? Are you aware of God's presence, his Holy Spirit, with you, in you, as you journey? How might we live out God's call to be a community of justice and peace as we collectively walk through the wilderness? These are the questions that these stories invite us to reflect on. As I have been reflecting on this story and my life as it is right now, I find myself returning again and again to the part of the story where God provides manna to eat. It is such a wild story. I think in how casually we talk about it and reference it, we forget how strange and unique it is. The Israelites in the wilderness needed food and God graciously offers to feed them, but in a weird way, right? Every morning they wake up and there appears a flaky grain-like substance all over the ground and the people go and gather it up in jars. And no matter how much they gather, though, everyone in the household has exactly what they need. No one has extra, everyone has enough. And they are not allowed to keep it overnight. When people inevitably tried to, it went bad. And they were not allowed to go out looking for it on the seventh day, on the Sabbath. But inevitably, people tried to anyways and came up empty. The Israelites learned to physically rely on God every day for what they needed. And they learned to rest on the seventh day instead of gathering food, trusting that God would keep his word again for tomorrow. God wanted to give his people food, and I'm struck that there was this impulse from the people to keep trying to take, to bring in extra, to keep it overnight, to go out looking for it when God said no. Just a glance at my life, at my schedule, how I spend my days, at my bank account, at my dynamic between work and rest, reveals that I have that impulse too. I struggle to trust that God wants to provide 
I struggle to trust his generosity. And I wonder if I even struggle to trust that God is actually the answer to my hunger. Can I believe that I will be fully satisfied in him if I don't constantly strive for more? And Jesus, after he fed the 5,000 on the hillside, goes into a discussion where he makes the connection to the manna story, saying that he himself is the bread that comes down from heaven, that he gives himself to us as the answer to our great hunger. How does that expand and alter how I think about these things? How does knowing that I'm a part of this story shape my sense of who I am and what I am called to do? The Israelites knew what story they were a part of. And so do we. This, of course, is no guarantee of flourishing. The Israel knew their story, their identity as beloved by God, and so often they failed to live in light of that reality. So do we. And yet God's faithfulness overshadowed Israel's failure. He remained intimately present, as we heard in Nehemiah. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. He did not forsake them. He has not forsaken us. He will not forsake us. This is our story. This is the God that we can look back and see who he is and trust that he is the same God here and now. The story is ours to learn from, to see ourselves in, and to tell those who come after us that our children and our children's children would also know and put their trust in God. Amen.